Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. And of course, I wish you all a happy or, especially these days, a happier New Year. And towards that end, we've got a lot of ground to cover as I talk with Roger Dow, the president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association, on his wish list for 2021 and the hope for a combination of common sense and real data to power the return of travel. Then I'll speak about the coming desperation for travel and pent-up demand with Tariro Muzuzewa from the New York Times. And last but not least, a look at a country divided as we re-approach travel with Zach Deitwald, founder of the Young China Group. First, Roger Dow. Mr. Roger Dow. How are you, Roger? Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you, Peter. It's uh, great to have 2021 finally upon us. Yes, as far as I'm concerned, 2020 was was literally the world's longest unwanted gap year. Oh, my gosh. So in your magic bag of tricks of what you'd like to see happen in in travel in general, whether it's hotels, airlines, cruise lines, governments, regulation, policy, you name it, start us off. Well, I've got a whole big list there, Peter. Uh, first, would, that COVID would go to sleep and travel would roar back to exceeding everybody's expectations. My well, I don't know if it's, I don't be- know. You know what? I don't know if it's going to go to sleep because you know we have to manage it. We may not ever be able to, to eradicate it. But I do. I'm, I'm right there with you about travel roaring back if we can manage it. Yeah, and then that I hope the CD, CDC will announce the only time when it's safe to wear a mask will be Halloween. <laughs> Okay. I also think the president will declare 2021 the year of travel and encourage Americans to go out and see our great country and visit their friends and family again. Well, that's if the president listens to you. Yeah, sometimes. We'll we'll find out, won't we? I guess we will. And then then I think when people say they're going to Zoom, I hope they're referring to driving to the beach. (laughs) Well, let's back up and talk about a couple of these before we get the rest of your list. Uh, Because, you know... We're living in a world where we have uh, sort of artificial boundaries and bans. 
We have the ban yep. on Muslims. We have the ban on Europeans traveling to the U.S. The European Union has the ban on Americans traveling to the EU countries. Is that on your wish list, too? Well, it certainly is that we uh, repeal those bans and we put common sense and data and uh, all the things we know about security in place and get the world traveling again. What can we do to restore the world's confidence back in America? I think what we have to do is we've got to get a consistency of protocols. Uh, it does us no good when California is different than Florida, is different than New York. We've got to have the same consistency. We've got to have a, a vaccine. And we've got to have all the protocols in place that are consistent and believable, and people know they work. And right now, we're not the United States of America. We're the fractured states of America. Uh, sadly, that is very true. I mean, I cannot tell you, and I'm in this business, what the protocols from one state to another are from week to week. And you know what? I can't either. I gave up trying. It changes so rapidly. And many of these states, even over the best of intentions, neither don't either have the, the resources financially or the staff to really do proper follow-through tracing and and, uh, and enforcement? Well, there's no question about it. Uh, I mean, it's uh, and so many of these things uh, actually go against uh, common sense if you really look at it. Uh, and we've really got to get uh, looking at what really works, what makes a difference, and put the rest of this stuff aside. Now, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. We have 50 separate governors. We have, to, we have 50 separate state senators or state, state legislatures, I should say. And then, of course, we have, you know, at the federal level, you know, a, a sort of internal battle going on either with the Congress or with or the office of the president as to who takes command and who leads. Well, Peter, we've got 500 airports in the, in the country. And when you go through TSA, the experience is identical. Uh, we know what to expect. We know uh, the various systems that are in place, and I think we've got to be able to do the same thing for travel, uh, or we don't have any hope of bringing this economy back. And as goes travel, goes the economy. I'm convinced that this is the backbone of the economy of the United States. We saw 2020 airlines furloughing over 50,000 employees. We saw airlines dropping many of their routes to secondary and tertiary cities, uh, which puts them in an untenable position in terms of how they're going to fly their own people somewhere. We've seen uh, corporate travel essentially flatline and not come back. Uh, the only travel that's starting to come back and will probably lead the way is leisure travel. Uh, there's no question about it. We're seeing leisure drive, especially to resort and outdoor locations, is actually done quite well. Uh, but you mentioned one thing. Until we change the corporate travel policies, and companies allow their people to travel and aren't afraid of liability of uh, getting sued for someone getting COVID, we'll never bring this industry back. Well, we're going to have to change the, the, you know, the litigious nature of our society. Is that even possible? I think it's possible, but I think what we could do is, is implement short-term liability protection where a company knows that they're not being put at risk because I don't know if someone got sick on the plane at 7-Eleven or at their house. Uh, so that's feasible. It happened after terrorism, and the same thing can happen uh, for liability protection from, from a health perspective. And not, not long-term, but just to get us through this thing. You know, I've talked to so many ministers of tourism from other countries, and they've embraced the concept of what they call destination assurance, giving people a realistic, comprehensive security blanket so that they know if they go to that destination and they either contract the virus or they get sick for any reason, that they will be covered 
by insurance provided to them by that government, which actually even goes beyond just stabilization and treatment in place, but medical evacuation or repatriation, where they fly you back to the doctor and medical facility of your choice. I, I see this happening in Costa Rica now, in Jamaica, in Aruba, uh, maybe even St. Lucia. Uh, why can't we have that everywhere? Well, I think it's going to be a point of difference. I mean, if, if you have a choice of going to one of those uh, places you just mentioned or somewhere that doesn't have insurance and the, the weather's the same, you're going to go to that place. And I think we have to do the same thing from a meetings and convention standpoint. Uh, if someone is can't go to a meeting or is held back because of uh, legitimate uh, sickness, they should be able to get all their money back. And I think you're going to see a whole new insurance industry born out of this, not only government, but I think the private sector is going to step in also. Well, now you've opened up the door that I was hoping you are going to open, Roger, so let's get in there uh, in terms of insurance and refunds. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves because we get so many emails from our listeners uh, complaining about having, with the best of intentions, bought, you know, they purchased travel insurance when they made their reservation, only to discover after the fact it was worthless because the insurance policy did not cover pandemic. Uh by the same token, an equal number, if not just slightly larger number of complaints from our listeners who booked their airline tickets or a hotel or a tour or a cruise or a rental car only to have the, the trip canceled because of COVID-19 and then they couldn't get their money back. Uh, they just couldn't get their money back because the, the, the places were either A, holding onto their money or they didn't have it anymore and they're only offering them vouchers which doesn't engender really goodwill. Yeah, I don't want to pretend to tell people how to run their business, but one thing that COVID did when the airline uh, rescinded their uh, cancellation and change fees, all of a sudden you saw bookings go up. People said, oh, okay, I'll, bo I'll, take, I'll book that trip, but if something changes, the airline is going to let me reschedule or refund my money. And I think uh, sometimes you look at uh, a few dollars you might make in one area and, and lose fact track of the fact of how much more business you could get if you had a more lenient policy. And by the way, Roger, you don't have to pretend to tell anybody how to do business. Just tell them. You can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, that's what you do. Okay, that's what I do. But seriously, I mean, look at all the, re the revenue the airlines were making pre-pandemic from all their ancillary fees that were somewhat draconian. You know, these ticket change fees were, in many cases, more money than the actual cost of the ticket themselves. You had you know, all the other ancillary fees for baggage and everything else. Are we going to get to a point now where uh, it's just a temporary fix and they'll come back? Because I remember when United Airlines made the announcement that they were eliminating the ticket change fees, they used the word permanent. We're permanently eliminating them. And I was looking for the loophole. I honest to tell you, I, I was looking, okay, what are they going to do to get around that? Well, maybe they'll call it a, a cucumber fee or a cabbage patch fee. But do you really think they're going to not want to leave all that money on the table forever? I was, uh, again, pleasantly surprised when I saw United make that announcement, and I applauded them for it. And uh, joining me, Roger Dow, the president and CEO of the, of the U.S. Travel Association, with his wish list or maybe a target list of what he wants done in, uh, in the year 2021. We were just talking about the ancillary fees that were 
providing so much revenue for the airlines, in fact, more revenue for the airlines than they were getting as operating airlines. I mean, uh, when you talk about baggage fees and, and food fees and, and excess baggage fees and ticket change fees and all sorts of other redeposit fees, it, it really added up. Yeah, it was a significant money. Uh, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars. And uh, if you trace it back, it gets back to uh, tax policy. See, fees are not taxed where your airline ticket is taxed. Uh, so there's a 7% difference if you get a fee dollar versus a ticket dollar. So if we change our tax policy, I think the airlines will be much more uh, open to making their money in the right way, providing great transportation and great service. So that's a hidden secret here. It was all about the, the actual fact that the fees weren't taxed. So that was found money for the airlines then. Right. And uh, if there's a policy like that, I don't blame anyone for take advantage of it. It's, uh, but I think we could fix our tax policy in many ways to make travel more attractive. In fact, that's one of the things I wish for is a tax credit for travel. You want to get this economy going again, uh, President, should every American be allowed to deduct $4,000 for travel? It will get so many more people traveling. They'll spend money like crazy and the government will make money on it. Oh, I like that idea. Was that your idea? So far, yep, and we're, we're, we're pushing it. I'm, I'm not kidding. We really are. Okay, so here's on my list, Roger. In the interest of transparency, and I, I've talked about this on so many of the shows, resort fees at hotels. Why are they doing that? I mean, especially city hotels that have nothing to do with resorts are charging a resort fee that could be as high as 40 or $50 a night. For somebody staying five nights, that's 250 bucks they didn't plan on. Plus, what did it get them? A towel? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's very similar to the bag fees, and uh, I think a lot of the hotel companies are actually looking at that uh, and just saying, hey, how do we put the value in the equation? And uh, I, I think it was a, a false positive as far as making money. And then we get down to something called the United States Department of Transportation and their rulemaking ability. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, they actually were able to do the tarmac delay rule where Congress couldn't get it done, but the U.S. Department of Transportation did. And it basically said if an airline takes you back from the gate and keeps you on the runway for any more than three hours without returning you in a delay situation, the airline can be filed, can be fined up to $27,000 a passenger. I mean, on a Boeing 737, that's like $2.6 million. And the airline said, oh, we'll never be able to do this. It's just, you know, it's just draconian. It's terrible. How many three-hour delays have there been since they passed that rule? Like two. Um, I think that's... We, we need to look at what the DOT rules are that are already in place about ticket refunds that the DOT has not done an enforcement action on following uh, the pandemic because there are billions of dollars that are owed passengers under the law that the DOT is not enforcing. Well, I think you, you make a good point, but uh, I'll leave that one up to you. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to bite on that one, Roger. Okay, but the, 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 the bottom line is we have an opportunity here, not necessarily to make new rules, but just to basically enforce the ones that we already have. There's nothing wrong with that. No, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, you're, you asked about my holiday wishes. Uh, I've got two last ones that I'd like to get in there. Uh, one is that the world will embrace what Mark Twain said 150 years ago. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. We get people traveling again. We can bring this country together again. And my last wish is that you and I can go on a holiday shopping trip in China once again. <laughs> I remember that very well, Roger. Uh, that, that, that's a story that will have to be left for the memoirs. But 
the, the, the bottom line is, you know, when we have the freedom to travel, and this is serious, uh, mm-hmm. when we truly have the freedom of travel, where we're not just talking about a pandemic, or we're not talking about politics or borders, we're talking about everything, where people can make free and open choices to travel when they want, where they want, and with due respect to other laws, how they want, it's amazing what can happen in the world that politicians and diplomats have been unable to achieve on their own. Well, as you know, I just uh, last month had our first grandchild, and my daughter, because she knows this business, first thing she's doing next month is getting him a passport. I love stories like that. There's somebody, you know what, that should be on everybody's wish list right now when travel is not high, when the numbers aren't high. Get if you if you need to renew your passport, do it now. If you need to get a new one, do it now. Because if you wait till April when things start exploding, you may not lo- you may lose the summer and be unable to go somewhere because the, of the backlog. This is the perfect time to get either a renewed or a new passport. It's good for ten years. It's the best investment you will ever buy. It's the most inexpensive investment you'll ever make when you amortize that cost over ten years. So well worth the cost, and it opens up all the options of the world to you, which, of course, is what travel is all about. Roger Dow, the CEO and president of the United States Travel Association. Have a happy new year, Roger. I really appreciate everything that you do. And yes, you and I will go back on another shopping spree sometime in the near future, I promise you. I look forward to a happy new year. My thanks to Roger. So where are you planning to go this year? Maybe exactly where you were planning to go last year, or maybe not. We may be on the verge of a rather frantic new bucket list approach to travel. Torero Muzazewa from the New York Times on some surprising as well as sobering new travel facts. I'm so happy that it's not 2020 uh, for so many reasons, but that doesn't mean that our long national travel nightmare is over. Someone who's been covering this from day one and uh, has a lot to say about it is a great writer for the New York Times, Tariro Muzazewa. How are you, Tariro? Hi, Peter. I'm well. How are you? I'm hanging in. I'm 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 not sighing a big sigh of relief, but I'm I, I sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel, and for once, it doesn't look like the train's coming at me. Um, <laughs> You know, but there's still no guarantee. And I guess this has got to be the year uh, of guarantees of what they call destination assurance, of a revamping in travel insurance policies, of a rethinking of what the word refund means, of a rethinking of of what constitutes an acceptable entrance into a country. Um, you know, the thing that, that worries me, and you wrote about it, you know, the, you called it the receding horizon of travel's return because every time you think it's safe to go somewhere, something else changes. I mean, all of a sudden Germany went on lockdown and and, and France is going on lockdown and, and the United Kingdom went back on it. Uh, we have situations now in California and New York and, and many other places where the, where the cases are spiking. And yet the pent-up demand for travel cannot, you can't even measure it, it's so big. Uh, So let's, first of all, if you and I can, let's review the last crazy year, which comes under D for dysfunctional. You know, if you want to work in the travel industry in the year 2020, your job was probably at risk, if not eliminated. And we're talking globally, 170 million jobs at risk. Uh, It certainly was a wake-up call for everybody to realize how big the travel and tourism industry really is on the global scale. But then, you know, we, we were on this roller coaster of uh, of cases going down and then spiking back up. And then we might have a vaccine. We might not. Now we do have at least two vaccines coming out. Uh, but then a question becomes, did we make enough? How will they be implemented? How will they be distributed? Is there a priority system there? Will there be a black market? And then 
Terrero, there's the worst four-letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel. Fear. How many of your friends, how many of your friends are going to be first in line to take the vaccine? <laughs> you know, I think a surprisingly high number of them will be just because they are so anxious and so tired of being cooped up in their small apartments in New York City. They're sort of like, I want to be at the front of the line. I just want to get this over with and I want to get on a plane and go on vacation. But of course, we know that a lot of people don't feel that way. People are really scared of getting the vaccine. Um, people are really scared of what it even will look like to travel. You know, somebody sent me an email this week and was like, am I going to need some kind of like passport or documentation or like proof to show that I've been vaccinated to go somewhere? So I think there are a lot of questions there and lots of concerns, which are all totally valid. And, you know, when you think about that, it's already started, right? Qantas, an airline that's not even flying and may not even fly till May in Australia, has already announced that when they do reserve service, they won't let you board the plane unless you can prove you've been vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Yes, they did say that. And it makes you wonder if others are going to follow the same example. I think before we realized how soon the vaccine would be here, there was already so much talk of testing rigorously before you fly and then after you land. Um, and I think some of those concerns and ideas people had about how that would work are now going to apply to vaccinations. Like, and, and then you start to wonder about your privacy. I think we'll see so much develop and people with lots of questions and have naturally lots of confusion around how that is going to work. Like, how do you travel after you've been vaccinated? But also, realistically, when will most of us, if, you know, depending on your health and all these different factors and how at risk you are, like, when will most of the people who want to go on these huge adventures even get the vaccine? Exactly. And then, you know, we talked about the airlines maybe requiring proof of vaccination. I would think, and I may be completely off base here, but I would have to guess that the cruise industry itself will have to come up with a protocol that will completely be unilateral across the entire industry that you cannot board a cruise ship unless you've been vaccinated. I think we will see that. But honestly, I actually haven't been covering the cruise industry. That's been mostly my colleague, Jaylon Yagansu, who I think would be better equipped to... No problem. No problem. ...how cruisers will be covering things. Sorry. Oh, I get, I get you. But the bottom line is we... I think you would agree that we're going to have to come to some universally accepted accredited program uh, like the old days of the yellow health card where it becomes as valuable as your passport uh, or even more valuable than your passport because it identifies your medical history, your current state of medical affairs, and uh, and allows anybody with the proper uh, reading uh, system to know for sure and almost instantaneously if you can get on a plane, get on a ship, or enter a country. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in conversations this summer and even up until now, one thing I keep hearing across the industry is this concern from people who say, you know, when will countries standardize their requirements for travel, right? Like having your vaccine or let's call it some kind of like travel um, vaccine passport, health passport, it will need to be accepted not just in the country that you're coming from, but in the country that you're going to. And the country that you're arriving at will need to say, yes, we recognize that vaccine that you got, that vaccination you got, and we'll accept it. So there'll be a lot of those kinds of exchanges. And like you said, at the top of the show, 
there's so much uncertainty in the industry and nobody really knows when something like that could be standardized, right? Well, you know, in the old, in the old days, by the way, that was maybe four months ago, in the old days... <laughs> Right in the old days, if somebody made a decision to do something, what got matched was done as a sort of reciprocal act, not necessarily always in the kindest way. So, you know, if we charged a visa fee for Argentinians to come to the United States, they would charge Americans the same fee to go to Argentina. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that's universally accepted because if everybody's acting in their own best interests, it slows everything down or, or it actually stops it. And uh, we've been talking with Tariro Muzizewa, the writer from the New York Times, who gets to travel all over the world under normal circumstances, uh, like I get to travel around the world under normal circumstances. Both <laughs> Tariro and I are waiting for normal, uh, as so many of us are. But in the meantime, we're also reporting on the business of travel and what it means to work in the industry and also what it means to plan ahead. Uh, this might be the year, Tariro, that people who didn't get their trip last year who got aced out, who couldn't go for all the obvious reasons, if they plan ahead this month, uh, maybe they'll find space by June or July. Because what I'm seeing is a lot of people racing out uh, to book trips right now starting in April, rolling the dice, if you will, that you know the vaccine will be widely uh, distributed by then, borders will come down, and they'll have the ability to, to travel. I will say that one of the other reasons why they get to roll the dice is the airlines were finally forced, one by one, to eliminate, to cancel those draconian ticket change fees. So for most travelers now, uh, you can roll the dice without getting killed, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Um, I think this is the year that people, or this month, you know, January will be all about people looking ahead. We know searches are up, uh, probably directly related to um, vac vaccine use. So that's really promising. And one thing I've been hearing is that people are booking, not just booking any trip for April, May, June, July. People are booking like their big bucket list trip, right? There's this sense of like, we don't know what's going to come again. Like if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that you shouldn't hold out. Like do it now, do it while you can. Yeah. So I do in, think in, we'll see yeah. quite a lot of that. You know, it reminds me, I go back to 2008, I was I was then at NBC. I was doing a, a special on the uh, an investigative piece on the uh, on the on the original crash of the Concorde and what really happened. I was in Paris at the height of the recession, and I walked into a hotel. Uh, it was the Hilton in Paris, and the place was completely sold out, and it was filled with Americans in the lobby. Um, I mean, busting at the seams at the time of the big recession. And I would I would ask everybody, wait a minute, you're traveling this summer? Yeah. And there's a recession. Yeah. And why? And the answer they gave me, almost without exception, was we felt if we didn't go now, we'll never go. It was sort of a last supper approach to travel. And and that's what we're seeing, I think, this coming year. I think you're right. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to those change fees and cancellation fees and all these extra fees that made travel a hassle. I don't know if those, those will be gone forever, but I think for the foreseeable future, they're gone. And, you know, the airlines want people to come back. Hotels want people to come back. And it's not great customer service in the middle of a pandemic to say, you've got to pay like a cancellation fee, a change fee, a this fee, a that fee. So I think there will be a nice combination of like pent up demand. And then also, 
you know, a little bit of wooing from different people in the industry as well. Well, you know, I, 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 anybody wants to woo me, they can woo me. Anybody wants to woo you, they can woo you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll be a frequent woo-e. <laughs> but here, here's the interesting thing. When United Airlines announced they were getting rid of the, the, uh, the ticket change fees, they used the word permanently. And I looked at that and I said, really? I, you know what? They're probably getting rid of the words change fees. Or ticket change fees, but it's it's the cynic in me saying they're going to call it a hot pastrami and rye fee, and it'll be the same thing when they're, when they're ready to do it. I, I know they're they they're leave you know their accountants probably had an aneurysm over this because if you looked at at a, at a basic profit and loss statement, every airline that got rid of change fees ostensibly, if you if you ran the projected numbers, was leaving bazillions of dollars on the table of revenue that, that was really, in many cases, more money they were making in terms of clear profit than operating the airline itself. That is true. I, I'm i also very skeptical that they are gone forever. Um, let's, let's see how we feel. When we have this conversation next January, let's see where those fees are. Oh, by the way, next January, I'll be charging you a change in conversation fee, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but now let's take a look at some of the of the sobering statistics. Every week we're seeing over 800,000 people applying for unemployment benefits for the very first time, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get them. Uh, the United States Travel Association is estimating that you know 3.5 million of all travel jobs you've reported on this, Terrero, have vanished. Right? They've vanished and may not, and yeah. may not come back. Uh, we, we're and looking. I don't at- think they'll be back for a few years. Yeah. No, and, and, and 34% of hotels in the United States are either on the verge of or about to face foreclosure. The normal foreclosure percentage was less than 1%. This is scary stuff. It really is. You know, in my reporting over the last couple of months, you know, people are using words like desperate, um, survival. And I think that's really, I I do think those are two words that capture the situation in the travel industry. And that's across the board, right? That's if you're a housekeeper, that's if you own a small hotel, that's if you work in the airline industry, they're really fighting for survival at this point. And people are desperate to get things going again. And at the same time, they understand why, you know, why things are moving slow right now. So the industry's in just such a tough spot. Although hope floats the stock market and hope floats the travel industry right after the original Pfizer announcement about, you know, two or three weeks ago, bookings on airline tickets went up 25%. So there was, there was a direct correlation there. There was. And then, you know, I thought that was really interesting as well, because that was the start of November, right? And then we had maybe two weeks later, we had that moment where the CDC said, don't travel. And it was a week before Thanksgiving, so people start panicking, and they're like, should I cancel? What do I do? And we know a lot of people didn't cancel, right? Like, lots of people traveled over Thanksgiving. But those numbers are still shockingly low, you know, compared to what they were a year ago. Um, and I think that's what, that's why you sort of have to take this, you know, there's this optimism and this hope, but this really harsh dose of, uh, of reality of this just might not be enough quite yet. Yeah, you know what? We're going to take this in stages. I know more Americans than than it used to be in terms of a percentage are saying they would take the vaccine, uh, but mm-hmm. it's still not 100%. And uh, 
I guess the one message that hasn't gotten across effectively enough, I don't know if you agree with me or not, is that we're not talking about getting rid of the virus. We're talking about managing it. Um, and that, that's it's no different than the flu. We haven't gotten rid of the flu. We're, we've figured out ways to manage it. So my question is this. When, and I know this is not your area, but I can see it coming, you know, when <laughs> cruises resume with 3,000 passengers, which would be on some ships only 50% capacity, and one person tests positive for COVID, does that mean the ship is, is, you know, is beached forever and the cruise is over? Or have we figured out a system in which we can easily identify because of rapid response testing someone who does test positive, that we've built up the infrastructure to be able to sequester them in a secure area where they can be treated without affecting anybody else and the cruise can continue? You know, what, what are we doing? Because otherwise it becomes a negative you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that's going to repeat time and time again. I think the travel industry has done, and the cruise industry um, in particular, has done such a good job this year. All that time they spent not being able to sail, (laughs) Um, unfortunately. uh, They've spent a lot of that time figuring out how to change things when people can sail again. And I don't think that if one passenger or a handful of passengers on a cruise ship get sick uh, in a cruise stay sometimes over the summer. If somebody tests positive, I would hope that we are at a place where those few passengers or that one passenger can be quarantined and the situation can be dealt with without the ship going to sail all over the Caribbean, for example, like we saw last March. Um, I think we are in a very different place. I think we've got a better handle on testing. I think the industry's got a better handle on checking temperatures and a better understanding of how the virus spreads. Zach Deitwald has been on the cutting edge of travel trends, especially in Asia. He updates me on the lessons learned from the Chinese experience with Corona and how different travel behaviors in different societies and cultures are either powering the return to travel or maybe preventing it entirely. One of our regulars, when we can find him somewhere in the world, the uh, the founder of Young China Group, and of course you can find him at youngchinagroup.com, Zach Deitwald. How are you, sir? Doing great. Happy to be in 2021 and have 2020 behind us. No kidding. Well, you know, Young China Group means, you know, China. You you know, every time we've talked on the, on the phone before and on the show, we talk about the trends uh, how China is leading the way in certain areas, what it indicates, what it represents, uh, what the impact is. And I find it somewhat ironic today that, you know, the, the virus came from China. China closed down first. It also opened up first. And if you take a look at the travel industry right now, uh, every hotel is doing great there. The airlines are doing great there. The airports are doing great there. Um and their economy is doing great there, and the rest of the world is is basically playing catch up in every possible way. Uh, what lessons have we learned about how the Chinese dealt with this? So we saw the worst of of the Chinese system of government, followed by really the best of the Chinese system of government. And, and I I brought in the conversation because, especially with with the blame game, it's hard to just uh, have good feelings towards China for a lot of people. But you look at you look at South Korea, you look at Taiwan. There have been a number of countries that have been more successful. And um, 
Look, for Western countries, we hope that's going to be partly from uh, rapid testing. But, but ultimately, what China's done a really good job of is created a sort of hermetically sealed ecosystem where the people who are traveling there um, feel safe, feel the people around them are without COVID, and they feel like they can, they can trust where they're going um, and the people who are going to be traveling with them. Now, that means that most people aren't leaving the country. And it means that the reason that, you know, Sanya is, is, is filled to the brim, it means that the, the reason that domestic flights are actually higher than we've seen them uh, a year ago, it, it's because all of that global travel, which was really the trend of 2019, the Chinese traveler going outwards, um, has been redirected inwards. And interestingly enough, I think it's also representative of how a government says to their population, do this, and they do it. You know, we're going to shut down, and they shut down. Uh, the United States hasn't done a, done a pretty good job of that at all. No, we've missed the boat on it. And, and what's, what's frustrating to me uh, is that the people who are going to be hurt the most are the small businesses. So ironically, the shutdown is often um, sort of championed by people who are simultaneously championing small businesses. But what we've seen in China is that actually a quicker, more severe shutdown, and not, again, not just in China, but throughout uh, East Asia, has actually helped small businesses the most because they're no longer in this half open, half closed limbo. They're able to fully open after a tough couple of months uh, and get business back and running. And Chinese office buildings are back open. The restaurants are back open. The flights are full. And, um, you know, it took a, a, a harsh hand at the beginning, but the outcome is one that a lot of people in China are, are happy with. Are there lessons that can be applied now as we still are trying to emerge from this? Yeah, you know, the, the lesson is, and, and this is one we've heard, but the more I think about it and the more we've seen commentary from China and again throughout East Asia, um, these are lessons that, that East Asia really learned from the SARS epidemic in 2003. Uh, you have people who recognize that sacrificing some of these personal, you know, we use the word freedoms and then we, we sort of sink into a, a deeper debate. Let's just call them comforts, you know, the, the ability to walk around with or without a mask. Uh, the need to uh, protect your neighbors from potentially something that, you know, if you have the sniffles that day and, and deciding to quarantine at home. I mean, these are sort of mental um, sort of cautionary alarms that even before 2020, people in East Asia felt. Um, I often would tell people, and, and this was always a big surprise to a lot of Western colleagues, that in China um, before COVID, uh, people wear masks when they are sick. So if you're on the subway and you see someone wearing a mask in China, it's often because they're not feeling well. And they've been told and been taught that when you're not feeling well, you contain it. And so that mask is, has, has always been sort of symbolic as people containing, if they are sick, um, containing that from, from spreading it around to others. That mentality, when scaled to 1.4 billion people in the case of China, is part of what's made it so effective alongside, of course, um, a, a fairly severe government um, set of restrictions. So there was already a, a cultural comfort with wearing a mask. There's a cultural comfort with wearing a mask and making sacrifices for others. Um, I will say a big part of uh, what has made it work is that there's been trust in the vision. So obviously China is, uh, the government is harsher, um, but there's also been trust that the, the vision that the government is taking on uh, is necessarily harsh. It's not unnecessarily harsh. 
And unfortunately, part of our sort of political division identity crisis that has been the, the U.S. story for 2020 and hopefully not beyond has been um, half the country doesn't trust the other. And so that means if half the country says, you know, taking vitamins is good for you, the other half is going to say, well, I don't I don't believe it for a second. And what that means is um, you're not you, you have to get everybody participating in something like this. Otherwise, it loses its effect. You have to have people willing to protect their neighbors uh, and see it that way. Otherwise, you know, it, it really is a case of the weakest uh, link in a chain means the whole thing can break. So now where do we go from here? I mean, we, we've seen the, how China has turned things around uh, economically, uh, epidemiologically. Uh, what lessons can be learned from everybody else? Because if you look at the region there, you saw what the Japanese did. You saw what the Hong Kong folks did. You saw what the, the Koreans did. I also saw what the Thais did. That's a mess over there. Um, and and uh, their entire economy is in shambles because of this. So I'd say one of the most inspiring lessons for me, and I, I, I want to focus on that a little bit because it does feel like we can get so mired in the less, less than inspiring elements of it. Most inspiring part for me is, is during the, the depths of the lockdown in China. So we're talking early days, 2020, um, the, the dream, the desire that continuously sort of stirred up from the mists of people's discomfort during lockdown was travel. First and foremost, travel. And even when people couldn't go abroad to the extent that they wanted to, you saw national travel providers and you also saw individuals find ways to make their home the dream destination that they've always really wanted. And so this impulse to travel has actually been first and foremost in people's minds throughout the country. And I think you're going to see that globally. When you take something away, you know, that's when you really can appreciate it or not. I think there's a lot of elements of sort of materialism or styles of work. You know, maybe we don't need to be at the office 12 hours a day, five days a week. Zach, I'm seeing some radical departures in traveler behavior. You talked about how people pivoted in China and decided to make their dream destination, at least for the duration of the, of the lockdown, their actual homes. Uh, we saw in America through no, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. People ended up rediscovering America. You know, they, they ended up rediscovering their neighborhoods, their backyards, their, their own cities, their towns, their regions. Um, you know, they started traveling as families again. Uh, and we're seeing other pivots. Uh, we're seeing travelers realizing, as you said in, in, in the last segment, you know, they don't have to go to an office anymore. They don't have to commute anymore. They're working remotely. Uh, their kids are learning remotely. We've gone from working from an office to working from home to working from anywhere. Uh, so what does that do to cities? What does that do to our approach to work in itself? And so I agree with you. I, I basically see what, what we've realized COVID to be and an increasingly mobile workforce to be basically pressure valves on these urban centers, or if you will, sort of like um, an urban acupuncture is how I think of it. You know, you look at cities like San Francisco. I'm from the Bay Area originally. And when I grew up, I lived about 30 minutes from San Francisco. And now I live about two hours from San Francisco. You've seen the the concentration of talent, of jobs, of companies um, condensing over the last five or 10 years. One of the upsides is that people are realizing that there are styles of work that can that allow them to be far more free, far less tethered to a physical space. You know, I'm, I'm here in Oaxaca right now and we're able to, you know, I'm, I'm running a business that's based in China. 
it's 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 not a perfect situation, of course, but it's possible, and we're and we're making it happen. And we're starting to see companies, frankly, around the world, realize that not only do they not have to be tethered to a place, but they could also access talent from anywhere. And uh, and suddenly that talent is far more free to to interact with people from around the world. Um, one of the more interesting sort of themes we've seen come out of China, specifically in terms of travel, it's a little bit different than what we were seeing, which is that younger travelers in particular, you know, we are a young China group. Um, they were beginning to go even deeper off, off the beaten path. Um, Airbnb is essentially a, a Chinese-oriented company at this point. Um, but what we've seen over the last few months is that people are starting to associate more stars with more safety, safety and health and wellness both in terms of the medical safety, but also I want to treat my body right. Um, those, those trends uh, are being accelerated. And, and China, which was not fully on the wellness train quite yet, you were starting to see it happen. There was an increasing awareness of gyms and physical fitness, but wellness travel hadn't really emerged in people's minds as something that was worth pursuing and spending on. That's changed people's health, their body, um, is first and foremost in their minds at this point, which, you know, I, I per personally think is a sort of welcome shift. And we're seeing some other lifestyle changes too. Um, how many people are no longer looking at a destination as a vacation option, but they're looking at it as a lifestyle choice. Uh, they're looking at it as an opportunity to physically move somewhere because they can now. Yeah. You know, the digital nomad thing used to be sort of a, a way to make fun of millennials on the road. You know, I think I, there's a few of these digital nomad hubs around the world, but even though you don't have to be anywhere, everyone's still sort of gravitated to Bali, right? Um, we're starting to see that, that's, that, that more people are considering that. It's no longer sort of an avant-garde concept within the workforce. More people are realizing that that's possible. We're seeing it in China, which again, I think is particularly healthy. When you have these super cities that have, you know, the, the cost of living, the cost of housing is gone gotten so out of touch with the average wage, suddenly, you know, you hit a pressure valve and a lot of that pent up, frankly, frustration that builds when you're when you're in a city that you is just out of reach for for most people. Um, suddenly, young people are realizing they can be everywhere and older people are realizing they can be everywhere, too. Plus, you have parents working from home or working remotely. You have kids learning remotely. Uh, there's no reason to go to an office right now. At least, I, I'm, I have my arguments against that, by the way. But for most people, they could actually make the case that they don't need to go to the office. Uh, the kids are not going into physical schools right now. And so when you have those options, and next, nobody wants to be on a long commute downtown uh, or spending a lot of money going out to restaurants every night for business dinners, next thing you know, you're looking at a real pivot in a lifestyle change to leaving the cities uh, leaving the higher expenses and moving to, you know, not the suburbs, but beyond the suburbs. They're moving, you know, to the mountains, to the deserts, to the seacoasts, where the cost of living in many cases is less because they've taken all those other costs they don't have to do anymore, right? I mean, I, there, there's this joke in London that it's cheaper to live um, in Ibiza and commute to London than actually rent a flat in London. And, and you, you do have these sort of distended working situations and people were realizing that cost of living in these big cities had gotten out of black. So, so yeah, this to me feels like a pretty natural progression of that. I will say though, uh, that what, what I expect in the, in the years to come when we have the choice is a blend. I don't think five day 
in the office, long commute uh, work days are going to be the norm again. I think people are going to recognize that extended holidays make for happier and more productive employees. Uh, but I do think that um, one of the things I, I heard from the CEO of Microsoft, I got to take part in the, the Wall Street Journal CEO Council not so long ago. And he pointed out one of the, you know, this is the guy who created Teams. So he's very invested in the mobile work movement. But he did say one of the downside was we burn social capital. You know, there isn't the sort of informal uh, conversation at the water cooler or the or the right. beer spigot or whatever you're working in. We, we burn social capital and we don't have the opportunities to earn it back necessarily. So I think a blended workforce is going to be what we're looking for uh, going forward. And in terms of travel and vacation, I think we're going to redefine uh, vacation policies at, at Fortune 500 companies, at least, where they're going to get rid of a vacation policy. In fact, they're going to say nobody gets a two-week vacation anymore, nobody gets a three-week vacation anymore, or a one-week vacation anymore. It'll be as much vacation as you want as long as you finish your work because nobody's punching a clock to begin with. Well, whereas Americans, we're frankly kind of behind in our vacation policies. My hope is we're going to leapfrog and, and get way ahead because exactly what you're saying, we're already seeing this in Silicon Valley. You know, most of my friends who work in the Bay Area, um, their bosses this year uh, have already decided to do away with vacation policies because not only do they not work, uh, they, they actually make for a less productive workforce. This year has really been the acid test for that. No one was willing to make the plunge before. Now people are willing to leave, so, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, and, and what that means is, as long as you get the work done, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not punching a clock. We're not counting days. We're not talking about, you know, comp days or sick days. We're basically saying, you know what, you get the work done. You want to take two weeks off? Go ahead. You want to take three weeks off? Go ahead. Just, you know, make sure you get the work done. And because what I'm finding, and Zach, maybe this is also happening with you, I'm sitting at home at 10 o'clock at night on my computer going, oh my God, it's 10 o'clock. I got to go home. And then I realized, wait a minute, I am home. And, and I'm, I'm sure I share that emotion with a lot of people listening to the show right now. We, we just end up working more. It is true. There's actually a good amount of research. And, and this came out early from China, but you see it, you've seen it all over the world that people actually work longer when they're working from home. Uh, they work longer, they're typically happier across the board. Um, even though it is somewhat isolating, if they have a good setup, it definitely um, is a more sustainable, sustainable type of work. Uh, I will say, and you know, millennials used to be maligned for this around the world. It's like, oh, you gotta give us a lot of um, outlets in our hotel room. If you do not have good Wi-Fi. It's not just millennials anymore, Peter. It's, it's any single generation when they're traveling the world, there is going to be that blended work life, work travel uh, situation. So if your Wi-Fi is not up to snuff, uh, don't, don't just expect to turn away millennials. You're, you're looking to turn away just about any generation now who's living this new work travel balance. You talk about the people who feel they've been left behind. We're now in a new year. What happens to them? Well, my hope is... Uh, and, and I think a lot of the political turmoil we've frankly seen in the United States is um, sort of revolving around this issue. There, there's, a, there's parts of the, of the country uh, who do not feel that the country is being made for them anymore. And you see this in the United States, but you also see this globally. This isn't a U.S.-only conversation. And so, I mean, you talked about Internet inclusion. And if you talk about wanting to be involved in the workforce of not just the future of today, um, you know, high-speed high speed broadband is, is sort of a basic necessity for, for the workforce of 2021. 
So my hope is, is that the country begins to focus on really concrete, I'm not talking anything ideological, really concrete um, methods and measures to be more inclusive of, of a larger swath of the population, to get people up to speed, uh, to be able to meet the demands of, of the modern workforce. You know, internet's got to be the basics now. It has to be. And, and you know, I'm so addicted to it now. Um, I'm looking for all sorts of technology to help me in some of those areas where I, I know I'm going, where it's, the internet system is, is either compromised or doesn't exist. I mean, we've become so addicted to it, so dependent on it, uh, as in many cases, our only communication tool. Well, the other side, of, you know, you're so enabled by it too, right? You know, you're able to run your incredible business around the world, your incredible program around the world through the internet. So we focus on the downsides of the internet and it is, you know, it's hard not to. Uh, the Social Dilemma did a really great job of highlighting how, frankly, the internet and social media, how badly it makes us feel, how it can be divisive in terms of it creating different um, information echo chambers. But we, we don't give enough lip service to, to really how much um, good it's done in our life, how, how much information is disseminated around the world, how it's enabled education during this global pandemic. I mean, we would not be able to be where we're at uh, after COVID uh, were it not for the internet enabling education, enabling our jobs. Can you imagine this pandemic without it? Exactly. But now I'll put the devil's advocate hat on and talk about the big bad C word, conversation. What happened to that? What happened to that? The ability in a world of social distancing and everybody being siloed, the ability to actually have conversations. What about eye contact? So I, I have a friend who does generational research, um, focusing actually on, on Gen Z and even younger than that. And there was already concern, you know, Gen Z is the first digital, digital native generation. There was already concerns about Gen Z and their ability just to hold eye contact. And I wonder, you know, that was from using the internet a lot. That was from being attached to their phones. I wonder if that's going to spread throughout all the generations who are more used to Zooming with people than talking with people over, over a beer or a coffee. Right. And the idea of being able to be in an office situation where you have a relatively large uh, social gathering uh, opportunity to be able just to walk down the hall and stick your head in somebody's office and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or can we talk about this project without scheduling a Zoom call? Yeah, it's true. You know, Peter, I, I watch movies now that were, of course, made before 2020. And now when I see people in an office setting, when they're like kind of too close to one another and they're not wearing masks or when, or when strangers hug, it gives me anxiety. I realize that like there's been a certain amount of this COVID mentality around social distancing, around the new sort of styles of decorum that have been internalized in me to a greater extent than I even realized. So when I look at pre-COVID life, it kind of gives me the willies. I'm going to have to have some sort of uh, deconditioning uh, <laughs> in a post-COVID world just to just interact normally. Right. You watch, you watch those movies, you go, oh my God, he touched her? Oh my God, she kissed him? They hugged? Are you crazy? It's, it's, it's hard to get it out of your head. Well, here's what I'm having difficulty getting my arms around. I predict that by probably mid-February, so what, about a month and a half from now, There'll be about 40 major high-rise office buildings in downtown New York, probably 20 of them in Chicago, maybe 15 in downtown Los Angeles and other major cities that will be completely vacant and will never reopen. Gosh, it's, 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 I can already imagine it. So we were in, I was in Brooklyn for, for the worst of the, of the first sort of shutdown. And we'd be in the busiest, tar, busiest, busiest parts of, 
uh, Midtown East, where it used to be, you know, the craziest lunch rush in all of the city. And it would be an absolute ghost town to, to the effect of people actually stopping their cars in the middle of Fifth Avenue, getting out and taking selfies in the, like sprawled across the middle of the road. Now in New York of yesteryear, you would have gotten run over in about 0.5 seconds. But in the New York we saw then, and, and one that you're sort of increasingly seeing now or continuing to see now, um, it, it hasn't bounced back. I worry no, about office space. It hasn't. I wouldn't want to be someone in charge of office space. No, I wouldn't want to be that person either. And by the way, I have to admit to you, Zach, that I was one of those guys who walked out to the middle of Fifth Avenue at, you know, and, and I didn't lie down on Fifth Avenue, but we did a wide angle shot of me standing there by myself with no traffic in front of me, no traffic behind me. It was sort of like they had evacuated New York City but hadn't bothered to tell me. Zach Deitwall, the founder of YoungChinaGroup.com, always a pleasure to talk to you. I want to check back in with you, Zach, in about six months to see if we're doing any better than we are now. Something tells me we will be because we don't want to do any worse. My thanks to Zach, to Tariro Muzazewa, and to Roger Dow. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's travel leaders, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. For breaking travel news, and there's a lot of it, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.